Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jahoski. Welcome to episode number 22, entitled Estelle, Kingship, and Incarnation in Middle-Earth with Dr. Brad Berzer, who holds the Russell Emos Kirk Chair in American Studies and is a professor of history at Hillsdale College in Michigan. He proudly serves on the boards of the Free Enterprise Institute and the Center for Cultural Renewal. In 2010, he co-founded the Imaginative Conservative website, and in 2012, he co-founded Progarchy.com, a site dedicated to the exploration of music in all of its various forms. Dr. Berzer also writes for Ignatius Insight, Catholic World Report, and Catholic Vote. He earned a BA from the University of Notre Dame and a PhD from Indiana University. Brad is the author of several books and scholarly articles, and he has also done numerous book reviews, including a forthcoming one on my book, which I'm so honored and grateful for. Uh, It's going to be, I think, sometime later this month, June of 2021, uh, which will be published through the Imaginative Conservative website. So thank you, Dr. Berger, for considering and writing a review of my book. I'm so, so grateful. His book that we'll be talking about today, of the other publications that he has written, I will attach a link to his website so you can learn about some of his other uh, scholarly contributions. But the book we'll be talking about today on today's episode of Mythic Mission is his book entitled J.R.R. Tolkien's Sanctifying Myth, Understanding Middle-Earth. It was also prefaced or forwarded by, uh, excuse me, Joseph Pierce, who appeared on our show a few months ago a few episodes back. I can't remember the episode number, but uh, go back and check it out. Joseph Pierce uh, came on the show to talk about his work uh, with G.K. Chesterton and J.R.R. Tolkien. That was another great conversation. So we've had quite a few uh, Tolkien uh, and Inklings scholars, I should say, on in the last few months. It's been really um, a great, great uh, late spring and summer for Mythic Mission. We've had some really terrific uh, scholars on. Dr. Holly Ordway came on the show. So if you haven't uh, been listening to Mythic Mission, you're missing out. So please make sure you subscribe if you're a new listener. Folks, please consider going to our Anchor website and clicking the support button. We need your support to level up our podcast and need new recording equipment. Um, I am in the works of exploring an audiobook version of my book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth with Wiffenstock. So I'm hoping to get a better microphone. Uh, for and headphones for the show for the podcast and to record this audiobook version uh, of my my book uh, hopefully sometime uh, this summer and fall so we would love your support to make the podcast go to uh, to better places technologically and to also make this possible uh, to make this uh, a quality audiobook recording which I plan on reading myself but we'll we'll see I don't know if I can get any voice talent otherwise I plan on reading the book myself so uh, today, um, I hope you enjoy the 22nd episode of Mythic Mission, where we talk about, among other things, uh, Dr. Berger's background in Catholicism. We talk about the lesser-known text, The Debate of Finrod and Andreth, which one can find in Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth, called Morgoth's Ring, uh, edited by Christopher Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, one of his sons, uh, who also just passed away recently. Um, and we also talk about Tolkien's... Um, uh, understanding of monarchy and, and and how it reflects his Christian beliefs and Christian vision of God as king and how that permeates his mythology. And most importantly, I try to unpack with Dr. Berzer why the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which you can find, as I said, in volume 10 of the history of Middle-earth, Morgoth's Ring, is, uh, according to Dr. Berzer, and I quote, the central explanatory text of the theology of Tolkien's mythological world. Uh, we talk about why that is. So I hope you enjoy today's show uh, and uh, we'll see you next time on Mythic Mission. 
God bless, and thank you for listening. Quick bird's eye view of today's uh, 22nd episode of Mythic Mission. Dr. Berzer and I will be discussing not only his book, but how monarchy in Middle Earth reflects Tolkien's Christian vision of God as king, and also an obscure but supremely important text in Tolkien's mythology called The Debate of Finrod and Andreth, which I'm sure uh, a few of you have heard of, but many may not have heard of this text. If you're interested, you can find it in volume 10 of the history of Middle-earth called Morgoth's Ring. And this was edited by Tolkien's son, Christopher Tolkien. Uh, Dr. Berzer says in his book, uh, which I mentioned a moment ago, of the debate of Finrod and Andreth, that one should, quote, regard this as the central explanatory text of the theology of Tolkien's mythological world. This is from chapter three of his book. That's a pretty big statement. I agree completely. Today, among other topics, we'll be discussing exactly why that is. Uh, so Dr. Berger, thank you so much again for coming on Mythic Mission. Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here. Yes. Very good. A joy to have you. So uh, as you know, I sent you a list of some questions and uh, sure. you know, just wanna introduce you first and have you talk about how you first encountered Tolkien uh, and when, just tell us that story and then we'll jump into some other things. Yeah, I don't know how long you want me to go on that. That's something I could talk about for quite a while. Yeah, that's for, good. For better or worse. Uh, yeah. I, I'm the youngest of three brothers. Hmm. And so uh, one, one brother is eight years older and the other is five years older. And it was mostly because of their interest in Tolkien when I was little hmm. that I got interested in, in them as well. So I turned 10 in September of 1977, and uh, it was uh, it's, that was September 6th. On September 15th, the Silmarillion came out for the first time. Mm -hmm. My oldest brother turned 18, I think, on September 23rd and got a copy of the Silmarillion. I had never read Tolkien up to that point, but if you remember that original version of the Silmarillion had one of Tolkien's own paintings on it called mm -hmm. the Mountain Path, which is that moment where the Hobbit and the dwarves are crossing into that lightning filled area where the rocks are coming down in the Hobbit. Mm -hmm. And you know, why they chose that for the cover of, of the Silmarillion, I'm not sure, but yeah. uh, they did and I was absolutely captivated mm. by that painting and I, I mean i wanted even as a 10 year old i just i wanted to jump into it i, I wanted yeah. to be a part of it so I, I actually kind of stole my brother's birthday gift <laughs> and i i tried to read the Ainandule, the the opening um mm. i tried to read that many 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 times i never got past it but i probably read that 10 or 15 times as a little kid and uh, was deeply influenced. So, so now, Michael, what are this? And I, I maybe I shouldn't admit this, but at Hillsdale, we teach for every every professor in history teaches four courses of core, mm -hmm. and our core are great books, great ideas. Oh, cool. And our our opening day, we teach the first three chapters of Genesis. Uh -huh. And I can never, ever read the first three chapters of Genesis without thinking of the Silmarillion. Neither can I. Neither can I. And it's it's so beautiful, isn't I it? Hope uh, that, I hope that God's okay with that. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, so anyway, um, the, the next summer after I had tried to read through the Silmarillion, uh, I had a lawn mowing business and I saved up my money. And I rode my bike down to one of our bookstores in my little local town in Kansas and bought the box set of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And I was 11 then, uh, wow. or going on 11. 
and my life is, uh, yeah, it's just never been quite the same. So yeah, you that, discovered Tolkien everything for me. Very young. Yeah, I was, uh, I think I was just turning 16. So just a few years after you, but that's very young and way to uh, jump in the deep end with Tolkien with the Silmarillion. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Probably that was, that is not something I would recommend, especially to 10 year olds. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's amazing. Um, and uh, it's a great, it's a great way to come to Tolkien. And, and you know, that really is his, uh, I mean, that that's the heart and soul of, of the Lord of the Rings. And yeah. we, we know from your book, there's what, 600 quotations and allusions to the Silmarillion Refer alone, yeah, right, just references right. in general. Um, I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of allusions to this this book that that's right. uh, what he began, uh, was it during the war or shortly after the first you know, war? Um, I mean, there's a bit of a debate about that, Michael, but mm. from what I can tell, the, the beginnings of the mythology started about 1913, just a little oh. bit before the war. I think it, it came to fruition during the war. Sure. Uh, you can see some of his hints of things like Quartarian and others. Mm. Uh, some of his earlier poetry was around 1913. So that's okay. usually, but he always said um, yeah. it was quickened by the war, right, oh, yeah. is how he would put it. That's so. right. I remember reading that in your book. Yes. Yeah, that's very early. And so I don't think a lot of our listeners are familiar. We haven't really talked a lot about the Silmarillion on the show mm. uh, and let alone the debate. So that's um, yeah, that's going to be a fun fact for our listeners. So very good. Okay. Um, well, I think, you know, for, for me personally, I'm interested. I hope my, my, uh, my uh, audience, our audience doesn't mind, but I wanted to ask you about why you became a Catholic. Uh, and I assume oh, I should sure. have asked you first, but you're still a practicing Catholic. Uh, is that correct? Yes, it is. So you know, what drew you to Catholicism? Were you always a Catholic? Did you convert? Did, you know, what was your story there? And, and what, what is it about the church that drew you to her? Wow. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a lot that could go into that. I, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a cradle, but I'm what's called a revert because I left for quite a while oh, and then okay. came back to the church. Um, so, but my, you know, for me, I grew up uh, just to give you an example of how crazy my, in a good way, how crazy yeah. my family was, my maternal grandmother, I was very close to her. My maternal grandmother was the oldest girl of 17 children. Uh, I mean, these, these were big Catholic families. And I grew up yeah. in Kansas with, I'm just surrounded by great aunts and great uncles, uh, wow. surrounded by aunts and uncles as well, sure. but great aunts and uncles everywhere. We visited them all the time. It was always a part of what I did. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up going to mass. I, I started rejecting it, uh, it. You know, now looking back, I don't know exactly why, but mm -hmm. I started rejecting it about the time I became a teenager and mm -hmm. I still had to go to mass. I didn't have a choice. Um, mm -hmm. My mom, you know, basically forced me to go and I'm glad she did uh, but at the time I wasn't glad but I'm of glad course. now and I didn't really stop going to mass though until I, I left for college and crazily enough I went to Notre Dame mm. and for whatever mm. reason I just had no image that Notre Dame would be as devoutly Catholic as it was I thought it'd mm. be kind of Catholic in name only right. and uh, my best friend uh, just an incredible guy, was a devout Catholic, and he and I would just argue and argue and argue and have these debates, you know, as you only can when you're a college-age student, you know, mm -hmm. late, like two or three in the morning, <laughs> and he convinced me that Catholicism was right, and so I came mm -hmm. back to the church 
after Very that. Interesting. Um, I did. I did kind of mess around with some other churches. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I played around with the Lutherans for a while, and I respect <laughs> the Lutherans very much. Yes. Uh, I went to a Reformed church mm -hmm. uh, uh, for quite a while when I was in grad school, but I always came back to the Catholic Church. And even even when I went to the Lutheran and the Presbyterian churches. I would go and then go to mass afterwards. So I would go to two services on wow. Sunday, sometimes three, um, and I would hmm. do all of it. <laughs> I wonder. That's that, that that's that's great. I wonder if it's not the the liturgy of the mass itself and the the formulaic sort of approach that the Catholics take to it, that the structured approach and the you know you know what you're going to get and you can always commute at the Lord's table and that that kind of. Uh, constancy, I think maybe drew, drew me, um, maybe I'm speaking mm. for myself, but sure. My experience in Protestant churches has not always been that, you know, first of all, there's not regular communion and it's not mass. It's very different. And the liturgy is very different, but I never felt as much of a, and I'll just kind of say it bluntly, there's not, not such a deeply, uh, you know, entrenched mythos there. And I never felt like I understood the roots of Protestantism until I was, you know, much older. Mm. So I think part of the thing that drew me back, uh, and you know, probably part of my story um, has been back and forth with Catholicism, is that I, I miss the the mystery of the Mass, you know, the um, the uh, structure of it, and just the the beauty of it. I think it's the aesthetic element, maybe, is what I'm trying to say, uh, that sure. maybe draws a lot of people back because there's sights, there's sounds. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to disparage Protestants because I don't think that's, you know, it's accurate to say they don't have that, but there's just a, like Bishop Barron has said, you know, there's a Catholic thing, uh, you know, I think is the way he puts it. So it's, it's sometimes hard to describe. And, and Mary too is another subject, perhaps we could talk about another time, but that, that was something that also drew me back. Uh, and I, I think you've, yeah, uh, you know, read probably early parts of my book. We uh, we're thinking about returning to the Catholic Church. At least for me, it was a return. My wife is uh, was raised Lutheran, um, and at the time yeah, of the publication of the book, well. oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we we just had to pray on it. We had some other questions. I talked to some other friends. I actually was doing sure. some interviews on my book and was talking to some pretty hard reformed guys who were giving me things to think about. And we're we're still kind of wrestling with it. Uh, but um, you know. It's uh, it's something that's always I I'll say I maybe my Protestant friends will, won't appreciate this, but I still pray my rosary, even though I'm not you know I'm not yeah. really in the church. But um, anyway, uh, that's that's wonderful. So you know, yeah. is there is there something so for me, Michael? Yeah. For me, it was uh, what always kept me even even when I didn't really believe. Yeah. I, the communion always drew me. That's what I'm and, and so did Mary. I love. I love the idea of a mother who just always welcomes us back. There's something very powerful about that. Well, but, but I also have yes. to admit, there's a very practical thing for me. Uh, yeah. I just, because I grew up with all these aunts and uncles, mm. I saw how faithful they were. And yes. you know, they, they were, they are, some are still very much alive. Uh, some aren't, uh, as mm. you can imagine, having that mm -hmm. many. Uh, yes. But uh, yeah, they, they lived their faith in everything yeah. that they did. And that was a real draw to me to see that, that it wasn't hypocritical. It wasn't just formulaic, that they actually did live that. So that, that was very helpful for me. And, and that's and wonderful. Yes, because I don't think that's everybody's experience. And I think no, you know, many no. Catholics I've spoken to say it was just something you did. And even right. some of my New York side of the family who grew up Catholic on my mom's side, I think that was sort of the thing. Sometimes it's you just went. That's what the parents told you to do. And it, we right. don't understand any of this. So that's right. great that they lived it. They breathed it. They understood it. And, uh, you know, that's a problem across the church is sometimes Christians, sure. they go 
They don't understand what they're doing. I know as a young Christian, I felt the same way, but that's what I was going to ask you is what really sure. kind of drew you back and you answered it, you know, and what kept you. And I, I would agree. Mary is a, is a draw for me. One of the things that changed my outlook is having a daughter, number one, and yes. the way it just in a way that's sometimes inexplicable changes your worldview. Um, yes. Two is, and I, I'm not against the patriarchal, uh, and I don't mean that in the woke sense, but you know, sure. the, re- referring to God as father, this is how scripture refers to, to God. Um, that's wonderful. But I sometimes feel that in liturgy and, and just in, in church in general, I wasn't hearing enough about Mary. And sometimes I feel like we, we overlook Mary. And I know that many Protestants uh, know how important she is, but there's very much a difference in how Catholics and Protestants view Mary. I think that's one of the things that uh, I don't want to say divides us, but you know, which we disagree over. And, so, and I can freely admit as a Catholic that some yeah. Catholics take it way too far. I, I <laughs> so, agree with that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> when Mary they start Altry. referring to her as the co-redemptrix and that that's too much. I, I agree. I have some concerns about that as well. And uh, I've talked to some reform folks, especially who, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, I think, a relatively new development, too, uh, in, the church, in church history, where that title was given to her. Yeah, uh, last 20, 20 some years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. Well, um, as much as I'd love to talk about Mary uh, and perhaps another show in the future. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm glad. Thank you so much for, for telling us about that. And I just wanted to kind of share some of my own story and see. Thanks for yours. Likewise. Oh, no, yeah. it's my pleasure. We're still praying about it. So prayers are appreciated. Uh, well, you know, moving on from that, let's talk about your book. I know it's been some years since you published it. I think it was in mm-hmm. 2003. Right. I, yeah, I wrote it between about 1999 and 2002. Oh, and it cool. came out right at the end of 2002. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So, that so right, at, right at Christmas at that yeah. point. So that's perfect timing, too, for people who are discovering Tolkien through film. And yes. part of my own journey kind of eclipsed, you know, overlapped with that. Uh, it came out was, with the two towers. So. Oh, how lucky. <laughs> it was lucky. <laughs> that's good timing. That's good. People are like, that was, oh, I'm buying this. <laughs> that was not intentional on my part. But, yeah. No. in fact, when I started the book, yeah, uh, I started it in large part because I read Joseph Pierce. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there's actually a whole story behind this, but yeah, I loved that. Pierce's Tolkien Man and Myth. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. And but if you remember in that book, he doesn't go into detail in the larger mythology. He really focuses on the Lord of the Rings. Indeed. And so one of the things I wanted to do with my own was not just focus on the Lord of the Rings, but really look at the Silmarillion and the history of Middle Earth. Yes. That's uh, and I, I thought that there was still room. I thought what Joseph did was fantastic, but I thought there was still room to keep going with some of those ideas. Yes. And as you know, I mean, there's so much to continue plumbing the depths of Tolkien's mythology. There's so much to say. And, uh, you know, I I felt it was very intimidating stepping into the arena, but there is a lot. There's a lot still. Oh, there's still Uh, a lot to be said. And I I really, I have not finished your book yet, Michael, but I'm very taken with what you've written so far. And I think the idea of parable, especially, uh, and taking that from Father Murray, I I thought that was just fantastic. Thank you. So I think you're really on to something. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned Murray, because I don't think a lot of people that I've spoken with are familiar with that essay, which was a sermon that he gave. Right. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. I've got it right back here. Yeah. 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 And in that, that green, was, in that green volume. 
Yes, that's right. I have it in, uh, I think, Pierce's Tolkien, The Celebration. It's one of the many collected essays. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, which is another yep. another way you can get it. But uh, it was, uh, I think, a Thanksgiving sermon he gave at the um, centenary in 1992. Right. Uh, and then, it, you know, obviously you can get it in essay form. It's very short. And I tell people they should read it because that was really the germ of the idea for me. Uh, and I don't know how many people have heard of... Um, Sally McFaig's Speaking in Parables book, uh, but that was another one that... No, I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah, she she mentions, actually, and I, I cite this obviously in my book, the precedent for referring to Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings as a parabolic novel. That that was her phraseology, and I think that's uh, very key. So I appreciate your comments and uh, and hope you enjoy the rest of the book. But there's there's so much to say about uh, you know Tolkien's work that uh, even when I finished, I thought to myself, Wow, there's so much more we could we, we could have written about here, um, but tell us that's about. Good. That's good. That that's your I, next book. Then you've got more to do. Oh God, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I was thinking. Yeah, I was thinking. Actually, I have I have some ideas to talk about. C.S. Lewis. I, I featured a lot of Lewis's writings and ideas in the book because, as you know, they were for for many and most years very close. And uh, Lewis learned so much and was nourished by so much of Tolkien's views, as you talk about in your book, uh, on myth and. I think uh, most people are probably familiar with that connection, but to the mm. extent of which I learned was just very, very profound. And, and so in writing the book, I said, you know, maybe, maybe another idea, my next book would be on Lewis, but we'll see. Uh, tell us about, tell us more about your book, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Sanctifying Myth, Understanding Middle Earth. You know, what were you trying to accomplish? You kind of hinted at that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, so, you know, the, the interesting backstory, at least interesting to me, backstory mm -hmm. is that I had finished my dissertation in uh, late 1998 and defended it in 99. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote on the American frontier during the American Revolution. So mm -hmm. nothing, nothing to do with Tolkien at all. Right. And I'm proud of what I did with the dissertation, but I was really burned out. I'd been working on it since about 94. It took me close to five years to write. And that's all I was really thinking about were you know, basically the American Revolution and the frontier yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's topics I like, but yeah. I, I just was really burned out. And I, I didn't want to go on with that. And I was with a very, very close friend of mine, one of my closest friends. He and I founded the Imaginative Conservative together. Mm -hmm. And we were driving around Houston and he knew how burnt out I was, mm -hmm. uh, but he also knew that being in academia, I had to get a book out, I had to publish, had to do something. And so he said to me, you know, if you could write about anything you wanted to, whatever mm -hmm. book you wanted to write on, what would it be? And I, without any hesitation, I said, oh, I'd write a book on Tolkien. I, and I had, during my undergrad, I had taken a course called Philosophy and Fantasy. And I had written a paper for that. In fact, I've got it right back here, but I had written a paper for that. Uh, that really is in many ways, the outline of my book. Oh, wow. And so I had been taken with that topic. I had one, thought about that topic for a long time. And so my friend who's pretty well connected, Winston uh, told me, he said, look, do what you want, do what you love and whatever power I have, will make sure it gets published. That's awesome. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, okay. I mean, he was just, he was great about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I ended up finding a publisher pretty quickly, That's pretty wonderful. amazingly. So it all kind of just fell, fell into place. And then I just, I devoured the topic and wrote that book, uh, wrote it maybe a little bit faster than I would have liked. I actually was planning on about another year to write it. Oh. Um, but with the 
two towers coming out my publisher wanted it done mm -hmm. and so i sent in what i had to them they mm -hmm. still cut out about a third of the book um, it's about okay. a third shorter than the manuscript that i sent them okay. and I, I still had quite a bit more i wanted to talk about but wow. I, I thought it turned out well and i, I was do happy too with it. yes and i maybe it made it a better book to be cut down i don't know well that's what the publishers tell me too and you know i i admit uh, in, in reflecting the introduction of my book did not turn out the way i wanted and really would have liked to cut back on things and then there were other places i wanted to say more and so you know it is what it is no book is really perfect or finished i think it's uh yeah it's there's always yeah. something you well oh yeah you know you'd like to cut you'd like to add um, but I'd, I'd be interested to, to see that other uh, chunk of, of writing that you've got. I, I loved your book, obviously. Uh, I hope that's obvious and cited you, um, you know, quite frequently throughout the book. You know, thank you. And uh, it's, a, it's a lovely book. I have some favorite sections. I mean, I, lo I love the entire book. Um, quite honestly, there's not a place I was ever bored uh, or, or dragged on. I always learned something new. Um, one of the great insights, uh, you know, was that no, uh, not many Catholic magazines or, or uh, you know, news channels um, coverages, I don't know what the appropriate word would be at that time, were, were looking at Tolkien's uh, books. They, they kind of overlooked it and that yeah. upset him. That was an insight I had never, never known before. Yeah, he was very upset about that. And yeah, really, and understandably, I mean, this is a devout Catholic under mm -hmm. siege in England and yeah. Yeah, he, I think he thought that he deserved a little bit better reception than what he got. And yet, of course, yes. some of the Catholics that did review it praised it very, very highly. But a lot of the major Catholic publications just ignored it. And yeah, and there's wow. a, you know, a lot when, when and you know this very well, Michael, and your audience probably knows this very well. But of course, when Tolkien first came out, it was only reviewed in a first in a few places. Mm. His the what became Tolkien the legend yeah. took ten years, right? It yeah. wasn't until yeah. 1965 and 66 mm -hmm. that that book really took off. A full ten years after it had been out, Certainly. and it wasn't until it came out in paperback. Mm. And oh yeah. That, yeah, that's what really. And of course, with the 60s and all the craziness, oh, yeah. of the 60s and yes. all the hippies adopting it. Yes. Uh, it, it became a kind of niche and yet mm. more than a niche book. Uh, and but that's where that initial drive of Tolkien becoming Tolkien. Right. That's where that really Known. came from. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I could go on about some of the interesting things I learned. There's so much. But another thing that I think readers will appreciate about your book is learning uh, some of the I want to choose the right word here, his concerns and disagreements uh, with Protestantism in general, yeah. Tolkien's uh, maybe sometimes um, un uncharitable uh, comments yeah. or, you know, maybe even another word would be apropos, but, you know, he uh, had under understandably so, but interesting, interesting things to read, I think, in what was that chapter two or three of your book, uh, I, I just picked up so many interesting insights into the man's life and, you know, you know, looking at him and his mind, and I appreciated that a great deal. But really what took, took the cake for me was learning about the debate of Finrod and Andreth, which we'll come to shortly. Sure. That and one other insight, which I'd like to approach first, which is, uh, I think, prominently discussed in chapters three and four in your book. But um, something that just kind of clicked with me, there were several things that clicked when I, when I was researching. Um, this connection, and maybe we'll have to give some backstory for some of our, our audience, but between uh, Iluvatar, which is one of the names for, for the deity of Middle-earth and Arda, uh, more broadly speaking, the world, 
and Manway, one of the uh, Vala, one of the Valar, right. which uh, is another thing we can talk about to clarify for listeners. And then the king uh, in Middle-earth of the Numenorians that eventually would come to be destined to rule over all of Middle-earth. And I thought that insight was, was interesting. And it was coming to me around the same time when um, I was learning how to understand the gospels better. And N.T. Wright's mm-hmm. writing was extremely influential on my own thinking in looking at the gospels as stories of how God became king. And I always thought, it's interesting, you know, when people ask Christians, what is the incarnation? How do you understand that? What does it mean? And I had always heard, you know, oh, it just means that Jesus is God and, and uh, that's it. And I thought, you know, that just doesn't seem complete to me. And so between the insight in your book and uh, in, in the, the writings of N.T. Wright, I started to, to kind of sense this connection. I, I said to myself, I feel like I've heard this story before. And that's what made me look back on the Lord of the Rings and think, I, I really see this, this theme of God becoming king very prominent in, in Middle-earth. And that, you know, God is ruling through, uh, you know, his, his king in Middle-earth. And I, I want to explore that connection. And I think we need to kind of define some terms for some of our audience, Iluvatar, Arda, you know, the Valar, and, uh, and also have you weigh in on what you think are, are the archangels, are they angels? So, um, you know, p- perhaps where do you think we should start at the top with the big guy? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And of course, uh, the, your book is about kingship in so yes. many ways, right? I mean, you're the guy right. to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, I, I have, uh, I'm doing a, a project. I don't know if you've heard of this woman and I've, I've never met her in person. I've only corresponded with her, uh, okay. a European scholar by the name of Carolina Armenteros. And uh, her, her thing, what she does in history, and I guess she's pretty well known, mm. what she does as history is she writes on monarchy since the French Revolution and tries to figure out how monarchs have changed since the French Revolution. But she's putting together a two-volume work right now on various conservative monarchies. And actually, much to my surprise, uh, she contacted me and wants me to write, even though all of these other things are historical, Mm -hmm. she wants me to write a chapter on Tolkien's vision of monarchy. And so, oh. of course, you're going to be all over that in yes. what I'm doing, Michael. Absolutely. Um, and, so I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've got to spend the summer thinking about it. Uh, but it is interesting. I, Tolkien, of course, calls himself in his letters an unreconstructed monarchist, mm. right? He's, he's a monarchist or an unconstitutional monarchist, a monarchist without limitations. And I, I've wondered about that, uh, but I think it's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think when it, what he means by that is when it's appropriately done, as with Iluvatar being God the Father, when you have something like that, or you have a manway who I, I would consider to be a kind of St. Michael figure. Mm-hmm. When you have these kingship elements, they have to rule in a certain way. And of course, think about the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. We have three major kings in there, mm-hmm. right? We've got Theoden, who's kind of a good pagan. Mm-hmm. Then we have Denethor, who's a terrible pagan. And then we have Aragorn, who really kind of is a Christian king yeah. in the way that he rules. But then we can't forget, we've also got the head of the Ringwraiths, mm. who was the king of Angmar. Oh, yeah. Right? Wow. And so there, there are kings oh. throughout the story that run from the absolute diabolic mm. to the pure and good. Yes. And so that, you know, I think when we're thinking about kingship with Tolkien, I think it's a really complicated story. And I, I, I think Tolkien, Tolkien can see that these monarchies can go very bad. 
Sure. And I think it's important we pause there to, to explain to people that maybe, uh, and I also recommend the writings of N.T. Wright on this, as an Englishman writing uh, from, you know, constitutional monarchy uh, perspective, he, he writes in one of his books, I think, How God Became King, that this is a baffling idea for many Americans. Mm. You know, we fought a revolution right. for among right. many reasons to, right. uh, you know, George Washington had levies early in his presidency where people would come in and refer to him as his excellency and I think bow to him and he became quite uncomfortable with he that. He did not like that. No, not, not at all. I think he's like, yeah, this is a bad idea. Let's change that uh, too, too soon as what we would say. So, you know, I think Americans are like, huh, what, you know, monarchy that that's regressive. That's uh, oppressive. Um, but yeah. as you said, when it's done correctly, and of course that's seldom in human history, not, uh, or seldom is, excuse me, done correctly. Right. Um, this is a, a providential and wonderful thing, but more uh, to the point in the Bible, you know, God is among many other things, bridegroom, other things uh, seen and understood as King. I remember in the passage, first Samuel eight, you know, where uh, the Israelites are asking for a King they're asking for a human King sure. like the other nations. And God even just says they're rejecting me as King today. This has nothing to do with you, Samuel. It's all about me. They've Isn't been doing this. Such an amazing passage. It yeah. is. And it's also a weird passage for a lot of people to understand because we have problems already imagining a human as a king, uh, right. let alone God, which many people just don't believe exists to begin with. So it's just a very baffling concept, which might be a barrier to you know, reading our books and what you're working on. So I think people have to wrap their brains around that to understand what Tolkien is up to in his books. But it's clearly very important to him. Um, you know, as, as we begun to talk about. So Iluvatar is, uh, you know, the God, the father figure. He's the, the ultimate creator. king, right? Yes, exactly. That's right. And Manwe is a uh, Valar. For those of you that don't know, and there's many opinions on this, but the Valar are a, uh, among two groups, uh, the higher uh, pay grade uh, of uh, divine beings, uh, you know, non-human divine beings who uh, are um, kind of, I would say God's counsel. Now I know the prevailing perspective has been to view them as angels or archangels, but I would see them as, uh, and I argue in my book, the divine counsel, God's, um, you know, non-human divine family surrounding his throne uh, underneath them are the Maiar who uh, among whom we find Gandalf and uh, Sauron, uh, you know, who are names sure. that people will recognize probably instantly. Uh, and people are always baffled to hear that Gandalf is a, you know, lower divine being. It's, it's really interesting. It's an incarnate angel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Tolkien writes about this in his letters. So, uh, you know, Manway is in the Silmarillion, we're told he's the, uh, the destined to be first of all kings of Arda. And so this is where we start to see the triune sort of, uh, I think, theology of Tolkien. Uh, mm. I know we have to be delicate here, but you also make a connection. So Iluvatar to Manway, but to the, to the kings of Numenor, I think. Uh, and, and I think most specifically because they're destined to, to unite Middle Earth. That was their, that was their right. role. Right. And so I found that to be really interesting and how Aragorn figures into that story. You know, is there anything else we can expound on that connection? Iluvatar, Manway, Aragorn, is there anything else we can say, you think? You know, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm being too negative here, but, but remember okay. the Numenorians go so bad oh, yes. right? as well. They, they, they fall, but, for, but when they're good, they are yeah. truly good and truly interesting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then you, but what we could also add in, think about how dependent the hobbits are, yeah. even in their language, when there is no king, but they still say, but that's the king's rule. 
mm. or this is how the king thinks, mm. right? It, it, it becomes in many ways kind of a form of common law yes. that there is this being somewhere that takes care of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, so even the sheriffs in, in the Shire are empowered by the fact that there's a king, but of course there is no king, not, right. not before Aragorn, That's but they right. keep talking that way mm -hmm. so you do get all kinds of discussion of kingship i think that's really important but i mean just imagine yeah. one, of, one of the three books is called the return of the king so clearly tolkien is very interested in this idea one of the things i came across recently michael and i didn't know this until i was studying so uh, partly for on a book i'm working on right now on mm -hmm. on the inklings I was I got really interested in the great Scottish thinker Andrew Lang. Mm. If you remember Lang, he's the one Tolkien gives the Lang lectureship That's when right. he's at the University of St Andrews. Mm -hmm. And so I got interested in Lang himself because Tolkien is obviously at least influenced by Lang. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize this but there was a whole neo-monarchist movement in the 1890s that wow. really did kind of focus on the Stuarts in Scotland. And oh. T.S. Eliot was a part of this. T.S. Eliot had an image of the king on his dorm wall. Uh, Christopher Dawson, one of my really? favorite scholars who also was a friend of Lewis and Tolkien's, had a picture of the king on his dorm wall. Now, oh. I don't know if Tolkien did, but uh, I think that there's something that kind of neo-monarchism, I'm guessing, influenced him as well. Uh, oh, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, mm. I'm conjecturing here. I don't oh. have proof for that, Michael, but it just seems, it seems to fit with mm -hmm. several things that Tolkien says, both in his letters as well as in his fiction. Certainly. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the important theological takeaway point for this is that this flows from Tolkien's theology as a Christian is that God is in charge of all aspects of our lives. He's not, uh, you know, the sacred secular split is so commonplace today. He's not privatized and pigeonholed into right. just one aspect right. of our life. And, well put. Yeah. Thank you. God, God permeates all aspects of existence. You know, he's not just something we take off the shelf when we feel like it. So I think to, to understand, and, and this is metaphor, right? God as king means, well, we know what a king is like. We have concrete examples of this in history. What, what is that like? What is it like when, when God shows up? Well, it's like having a king over us and a king demands things of us. He demands obedience. He demands, you know, there's uh, taxes. There are all sorts of things that go with this and, and certain obligations. And I think that people need to start thinking along those lines as to maybe what Tolkien was trying to say in his writings is that he was looking at God in a particular way, uh, but God doesn't make the kinds of claims on us that earthly kings make, a much, much greater claim. So for those of you that are just wondering why we're exploring this topic, that's why is it, it, it gives us an insight into how Tolkien understood God. And of course, this goes right back to scripture where you know God in the Psalms is frequently uh, referred to as king. And, and uh, of course, in the hints in Jesus's parables and sure. elsewhere throughout the prophets and it's uh, from start to finish in scripture. You just have to, to open, open up the Bible and look. So I, I think it, maybe we can start segueing into our last topic because we'll have some more opportunity to talk about kingship uh, with a discussion of the debate of Finrod and Andreth, this central text uh, in understanding Tolkien's theology and his mythology as well. Um, should we kind of give a sketch? So we, we said we, where we could find it, volume 10, the history of Middle-earth, Morgoth's right. ring. Um, this was a complete and finished story, as I understand it, yeah. written in the late 1950s, most likely, although that's not exactly known. 
so this is after, for those of you that are wondering, after the publication of The Return of the King, which was what, 54, 55? 55, yeah. 55. So I think the prevailing opinion is the debate of Finrod and Andreth was 1959. So shortly after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, uh, the final part of The Lord of the Rings. And we need to kind of probably tell our audience what this story is uh, about. I mean, it's about many things. There are several themes. Um, when within the mythos itself, when does it take place in the history of Arda? Can we just start sketching it? Sure. Yeah. So it's in the first age, mm -hmm. um, later in the first age, where there's a discussion and Finrod is one of the great elf lords gotcha. and Andreth is a human wise woman. And what's interesting too, Michael, and I wondered why Christopher made the decision that he did, uh, but it does say, and Christopher is quite clear in his notes about this. So Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R. Tolkien, Christopher is quite clear that his father said that this work must appear in the Silmarillion as a part of the appendices. Wow. And of course it doesn't. Right. And that that's interesting in and of itself. It's interesting that Christopher chose not to do it. It's equally interesting that Christopher admits later that this is what his father wanted and he chose not to do it um, without actually giving an explanation of why he chose not to do it. So I came across when I was doing my own work on uh, J.R. Tolkien's sanctifying myth, I came across the original of this in the Wade Center over in at Wheaton College. And it's almost identical to what we have. The, the differences are, are really slight. Okay. But what's so fascinating, of course, and I, I, this gets to the heart, not only of the Lord of the Rings, but it gets to the heart of everything Tolkien is really asking about. Mm -hmm. the, the main question that the elves and that the humans have at this point, at least as discussed between Andreth and Finrod, is the question of what is our nature, mm -hmm. right? What is the nature of our soul? what are what's the extent of our soul what's the limitation of our soul why is it that the elves seem to live forever but mm -hmm. the humans only have this short lifespan and can that be explained in some way by the possibility that that iluvatar iru same name mm -hmm. uh, a different name for the same character right. uh, that iluvatar has in some way created the elves and the humans to be unique each in their own fashion. Mm -hmm. And I, I, mean, I, I would argue that at some level, the elves probably have, because of their immortality, probably have more in common with the Maiar and the Valar mm -hmm. than they do with men. Yes. Um, men seem to have a different kind of fate but it's not a bad fate. And in this conversation then, not to take this too long, but in no, this no. conversation, uh, it, it, the whole idea of an incarnation comes up. Mm. Uh, very powerful conversation about the incarnation comes very up. Uh, how is God going to redeem the world? Mm -hmm. You know, Could the artist actually enter into his painting? Could the author enter into his book? And that, that's really the crux of that discussion. And, yes. you know, I'm always, yes. I'm astounded when I read scholars who think that Tolkien's Catholicism is just something that's kind of over here as one part of lots and lots and lots of things to understand about Tolkien. No. But to me, if you have a discussion like that about the incarnation, and you're trying to figure out how Jesus could come into your mythology, yes. that, that doesn't seem marginal to me. That seems central. No. 
No, I quite agree. And there's a there's a lot here. Um, I'll, I'll kind of mention a few things, and we'll 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 just uh, you know maybe pick piece here and a piece there of the debate. But you've said several things that I think people will be interested about. Um, first of all, um, you know the incarnation does figure very prominently uh, at about midpoint through the dialogue. But what's really fascinating here is uh, two things. Uh, number one, um, Andreth uh, and Finrod both refer to this. I think Andreth especially. Uh, this is the, the the female character in the, in the dialogue. Remember that this is an old hope already. And now this is this is only the first age, folks. The Lord of the Rings takes place as does the Hobbit in the third age. At the end right? of the third age. At the end of the right, yeah. exactly, which is very it's important. Thousands of years away. So so get this then. So the old hope it's already old, but we're you know we're only in the first age. So this has been something that has, and actually the the text hints that. There are followers, people who believe in this and talk about this right. old hope, of which Andreth doesn't really say she's not a part of it. Right. She seems to be very skeptical. She seems, I didn't say that I was a part of this. I just said that there are people who think this. She's very bitter in the dialogue, and she has, I think, understandable reasons. Um, there's a lot there. Uh, second thing that's very important about the incarnation here is that um, it's mentioned uh, in reference to this idea of the word estel, which is one of the two mm. words... Uh, was this in, is this not Sindarin? Um, I forget which of the Elvish I'm languages. Sure. I'm not sure either. I'm not an expert, but it's an Elvish word for hope or trust. And it's the deeper kind of hope and trust as opposed to Amdir, which is another word for it. Um, but Estel is one of the monikers and one of the, the titles of Aragorn that's later uh, given uh, by, I think, his mother, if I'm not mistaken. In, yeah, I can't uh, remember, Michael. I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's an Appendix A of the Lord of the Rings. So what I found very interesting is that this really kind of in a way points forward to uh, Aragorn. And what I started asking is, you know, what would the incarnation look like in Middle Earth if it was present? And to me, uh, I, I saw the connection in, in seeing, you know, this is about God becoming king and ruling. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the text also hints that when this happens, it wouldn't necessarily uh, mean that all of the evils of the world would go away. There's, there's one part of the text that seems to hint at that. Like this is the beginning of Arda being healed. This is the first step in that. But uh, it, it makes me think that many Tolkien scholars have, have missed the mark here in saying, well, the Lord of the Rings can't be a Christian story because it's a sad story. But I think that's precisely why it is because even after Christ's incarnation, there's still work to be done. We right. still have to suffer hope and die. So I find this to be, as you said, a central text. So very interesting uh, that we, we ponder that. Uh, but the text, as you hinted at, is about other things as well. Um, the nature of the body and soul. Right. Um, and I think maybe we should speak to that. Resurrection is, is not just hinted at. It's explicitly stated at one point that it seems that one day the uh, fea, the soul, will raise up the body, you know, or that they will be raised up somehow and be, become imperishable. Um, and there's a comment that the body is not an inn to keep a traveler warm for a night. So Tolkien seems to be combating Gnosticism, you right. know, this idea that many Christians have had over the centuries that we die and go away to some other place and our bodies are unimportant. So um, would you say that that's correct about Tolkien's views that he's- Oh, absolutely. And okay. it's interesting too, um, especially since you're thinking about writing on C.S. Lewis, mm. it's so similar to what Lewis says in Mere Christianity, right? We, we, we have a body, we're saved, not by the body, but in the body, through the body, and we have a resurrected body later yes. on. 
And so, you know, our, our very material, our very physical thing, uh, I mean, this is important that God gave us this body mm-hmm. and gave us the soul as well. But the body and the soul have to go together in some way. And that, that's part of the right. confusion mm-hmm. on the part of Andreth as well as Finrod trying to figure out, well, why is it that the elvish soul seems to go to the halls of Mandos, mm-hmm. but we don't know where the human soul goes mm-hmm. afterwards, right? That's, uh, I mean, they're really perplexed about this and trying yeah. to figure out why the nature of each creature is different. And that's also yeah. why I think that the, the elves are more angelic in some way. I think they're I a very it. lower form of angel in yeah. some way. You know, yeah, even... it seems... Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. No, please, Michael, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to follow up and say, I think you're right about that insight uh, about the uh, the elves, because it seems that, you know, Iluvatar is going to keep them uh, in the halls of Mandos. Mandos, I believe, is another one of the Valar, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. He's a kind of, I don't want to say this is a one-for-one, one, but a Hades-esque kind of... Yeah, he's the god of the dead. Figure, yeah, god yeah. of the dead, quite, quite uh, poignantly. And so he seems to keep them. Uh, and I always have questions about reincarnation and Tolkien's views on that. Maybe we can talk about that. But it seems like they have a very different posthumous destiny than men do. Uh, and as yes. you said, we don't know what happens to man. And I think that's one of the things that troubles Andreth in the dialogue, which make it makes it, as you say in your book, very Job-like, uh, mm. you know, which is also interesting. Uh, suffering and evil and death comes up prominently in this in this dialogue. So... Yeah, and Andreth has suffered much. Oh, yes. Right. Yes. I mean, that's a huge part of, of her bitterness as well, mm. trying to figure this out. Yeah, and I think there's some unrequited love. Is it Finrod's brother? I can't remember the details, but there's they I, talk I about either. Yeah, there's some other character in, in the dialogue that she's she's got some pain of separation, uh, unrequited love. I think she's in love with uh, another elf lord and it's it's not returned, but I'm sure some of the other nerds out there can help us fill in the gaps. Um, you know, we, we can't cover everything. Yes, yeah, so let us know in the comments. So anyway, uh, yeah, she has some some really interesting things to say. But in that, I think this um, this bitterness that she has is also wrapped up in another really interesting concept. Maybe we should speak to. So resurrection, incarnation, um, you know, a, a healed age that we can look forward to. This idea of um, you know a new new age of Arda coming in. Um, but I was going to say about uh, the fall of man is hinted at here. And, and it seems like Andreth doesn't want to talk about what it is that made right. uh, humankind, mankind in the mythology uh, marred. Right. They are somehow. She doesn't talk about it. And I think it's in another writing at the end, the tale of Adonel, where we get the scoop on this. Um, so do you remember exactly what it is that men did? Uh, no. Okay. No, uh, I don't. I'm going to try to look at my notes to see if I have it. I think it, you know, I want to make sure it's in the right place, but there is uh, at least what we can say here while I'm looking an allusion to the fact that we fell. There's a fall in middle earth. Right. That was already off stage by the time they're talking. This is something that's already transpired. Right. That's Uh, what I remember about it. mm -hmm. I didn't remember getting details about how it happened. Yeah. I think you know, it, it seems like something, I might be confusing this with uh, the creation of the orcs, which I think was a perversion of the elves. Right. But it, I, I distinctly remember something about men listening to the enemy. You know, Melkor is the name of the first big bad guy or Morgoth uh, in, in the Silmarillion. And I think it has something to do with they listened to his voice rather than Iluvatar's voice. Mm-hmm. And they started to worship. And again, I could be conflating this with the story of the elves, but 
they started to worship uh, Morgoth or Melkor rather than Iluvatar. And, and so in a sense, this is a uh, Eden-esque type story. Right, so for, and, and a foreshadowing of what happens in Numenor. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, again, that's a, another part of the mythos, but later uh, in the, was it the second age, the Numenorians begin to, um, well, actually Sauron is there on the island right. in Numenor. And right. he's whispering in the king's ear that we should start worshiping his master which is, uh, you know, Melkor and yeah. not Iluvatar. And they start, um, do they build a temple or they pervert the temple that they have oh, they there? they pervert the temple, yeah, and start yeah. committing sacrifices. Oh, yes, that's yeah. right. Um, and then that's one of the reasons, uh, not the ultimate reason that Numenor falls. I think it's because uh, they sail to the Undying Lands in the West. Right. This is try to conquer it. <laughs> yeah. And we have that Atlantis-esque sort of uh, story, which yeah. Tolkien was quite clear about was uh, yeah. one of the inspirations. So I, I, I don't know about intriguing. you, Michael, but of the three ages, I'm utterly fascinated with the second age. Me too. I, I just, there's yeah. so much richness in it, in, in part is. because Tolkien didn't explore it quite as much as the other ages. Agreed. So there's a lot Agreed. that's left to the imagination there. Which is why I'm worried about the Amazon series a little bit. Oh. <laughs> a little bit, which uh, oh. I don't want to, sorry I brought it up, oh. folks, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, I know that's gonna that's gonna set some yep, comments off. Yep, yep. Well, we're gonna have our work cut out for us when that uh, happens. Oh my gosh! Well, I hope I hope it goes off okay, but we'll see. So, yeah, I think um, you know this might be a good place to stop. Uh, you know, we've uh, we've talked about you know what we we came here to talk about. Any any final things we should say? You think that listeners need to know about these uh, uh, these topics that we've talked about today? And then I'll see uh, if we have these any are questions. great, Michael. I've really enjoyed this. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, thank you. Great so to much. talk about. Good for the brain and good for the soul. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll see. I'm logging onto Facebook here to see if we had any comments. Uh, and if not, we can start wrapping things up. Um, I am going to post your website, link to your website, and to uh, link to your book so that people can find uh, where great. to purchase thank it. You. Of course. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. All right. Doesn't look like I have any at this time, but uh, that's great, folks. You can always uh, write me on Facebook or uh, contact me on Twitter if you have any comments or questions. Um, and we can always redirect them to Brad somehow and see if he can Absolutely. answer Absolutely. Yeah, anything would be great. great. Good. Good. Well, this was, this was phenomenal. Thank you all for listening to, uh, to our episode today. And uh, Dr. Berger, thank you so much again for coming yeah, on Thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure. Okay. Really great. Yeah.